Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. A founder's journey has its highs and lows. It's not a linear path. Every founder is also a regular person, filled with high hopes and big dreams. That middle part of their story, before they reach the top, is where we can catch them at their fullest potential. What we learn of their past gives us a glimpse into their future. This is Founder Stories. No one could have predicted the path of today's founder. Emily Rasmussen may have grown up in a log cabin, but that didn't stop her from having big city dreams. Her love of dance brought her to New York with the hope of becoming a ballerina. In college, she slipped off her ballet shoes and focused on studying international relations. It was there she harnessed her talent for combining community and philanthropy in the form of microfinance loans, eventually starting her very own model. This is the story of Grapevine. I'm Emily Rasmussen. I'm the founder and CEO of Grapevine. Grapevine is a home for collective giving. We help groups of people come together in giving circles so they can pool their donations and then collaborate to decide where to give the total amount. You can think of it as a crowd granting model as opposed to a typical crowdfunding model. I'm not sure what inspired my parents to build the cabin exactly. So I grew up in Northern California. My parents, when they were younger, decided to build a log cabin in the mountains near a town called Sierra City in Northern California. And so that's where I grew up. We moved up there when I was about six and my brother and me helped finish building the cabin and grew up up there in the mountains. We went to the local school for a little while when we first moved up there, but then we started homeschooling or what my mom called unschooling. And that was my childhood. Growing up in the mountains is a lot of work. So it's a lot of fun, but it also is a lot of work, a lot of chores to just maintain normal life. So what that looks like is school during the day and then always chores in the afternoon. Depending upon the season, the chores would change. So in the fall, it was always woodcutting season and burning season. In the winter, it was a lot of snow removal. We had... 40, 50 feet of snow in a given season. So we would be shoveling out the cabin, shoveling out our cars. We had a a couple of snowmobiles that we would take up and down our half mile dirt road to transport in and out and 
hauling groceries and things like that was just a normal part of the winter season up there. In the spring, it was always a lot of ditching. The road work was always a big part of our life in the spring as the snow was melting and trying to keep the road from flooding. And then in the summer, there was just a lot of clearing away of pine needles and things like that, fire protection, that kind of work. So we were outside a lot, certainly playing, hiking and motorcycle riding and all of the, the fun things up there, fishing and swimming. But just cabin chores were a big part of life growing up in addition to our education. I like to say my parents are hippy-dippy parents who had this idea of building their own log cabin in the mountains, but they loved nature. My grandparents had actually bought a piece of property in Northern California and built their own cabin up on the property and had said to uh, their sons that if any of them wanted to build, they would be welcome to. And my father was the one who got excited about that and always wanted to build his own home. I think it started as a small project and it just became more and more real as they continued to work on it in summers when they had the time until when I was six years old, we finally moved up there full time. I think for them too, they really liked the idea of being independent. And so I think the the cabin and the homeschooling all were kind of part of that bigger perspective and desire for my brother and me to be able to learn through experience, to be able to be connected to nature and to chart our own path. I grew up in a, an environment where the community was very connected, very active and very supportive of each other. And so we volunteered together. I remember when I was quite young, my mom would volunteer for local events and things to raise money for local community projects. She would always bring us along. And so I, I do remember participating in some of those community-based programs. And it was a very small community up there. So it felt like the whole community was involved. Even though we did that kind of volunteering work, I wouldn't say that my family was philanthropic from a donation of funds perspective. We supported each other, whether it was taking people food that were going through a hard time or doing big community-wide events to help raise money for projects. So there was always this spirit of giving back and, and supporting each other, even though that didn't always translate necessarily to dollars donated. We had very little money and it was just never really a conversation until I remember I was in elementary school, I'm not sure, maybe seven or eight, and I somehow started receiving these direct mail letters from the ASPCA. And I was a big animal lover growing up. I became vegetarian when I was 11 years old. It really struck me. And I remember collecting my change, little dollar bills and quarters and nickels and putting them in an envelope and mailing them in to the ASPCA. So that's my earliest memory of actually donating my own money, feeling like I was able to make a difference for something that I cared about. Ballet entered my life. I think like many little girls, I went to see the Nutcracker when I was younger and fell in love with the whole thing. And I was fortunate in that one of my parents' friends was a ballet dancer. And she had been an incredible ballet dancer during her career and then became a teacher in a nearby town. 
And so I remember very early on, this woman, Cheryl Bruce is her name, and she would give me ballet lessons in the kitchen in our cabin. And so just little lessons, you know, nothing big, but it it just sparked something in me. And when we started homeschooling, we had the flexibility to be able to to do more things um, outside of the school day. And so one of the things I wanted to do was take ballet lessons. And so we started traveling into town one day a week so I could take ballet lessons and I fell in love with it. I continued to train in that way just on occasion until the summer would come and in the ballet world, the summer is a time for intensive training. So typically what will happen is if you're training during the year at your local school, you'll then audition to go away to some of these more prestigious, more intensive summer programs in New York or Seattle, San Francisco. I started doing that. And I remember my first summer traveling to New York to train for two months was when I was 15. I wish I remembered the experience more, the the initial feeling. I remember being very excited and I got to go and stay with two other dancers that I knew from my local dance school and their moms. And so I had that nice group to stay with and they had been before. So I remember them walking me around and showing me their favorite stationery shop and ice cream store and all of these different little places in the neighborhood where we stayed, which was right near NYU. So right in Greenwich Village area. And I thought it was so exciting. There was so much going on. I'd certainly been to the bigger city before going to San Francisco, but this seemed like a different level. And we would walk to the ballet studio every day and train with just incredible dancers from across the country. So the whole experience from the actual training part of it to the city itself was just full of excitement and and so many new things. It was just every day was something new. I remember years later talking to my mom about me going away and coming back that first year. And she said the the change was just enormous. I'd gone away and grew up and came back two months later, just completely different, I guess, in so many ways. It was really formative, both in terms of my dancing and also just in terms of exposure I had to different ways of living and a life that I might want to pursue. So college for me was something I always knew I wanted to do. I really enjoyed my education. I did not leave school because I didn't enjoy school. I actually loved school and loved learning. And so I always knew that was something I wanted to pursue. But ballet became the the first thing to pursue. And really what happened was 9-11 happened when I was dancing up in Seattle at Pacific Northwest Ballet. And that was a hugely impactful experience for me. I had been in New York, uh, as I mentioned, training there before. So I was familiar a bit with the city. And so it connected even more for me. And I just ended up going through this period where I didn't feel like going to the ballet studio every day and working on my plies or my grange days or whatever it was, was really what I wanted to be doing. I felt there's so much going on in the world. I want to be a part of it. I want to try and help. What inspired me was a desire to do something, at least at that point, what had been very meaningful to me for a very long time, which was this art form that I loved and the ability to perform and share that with an audience, it suddenly lost the meaning that it had had for me before. And 
all that I kept thinking is that I wanted to learn more and be a part of this moment where it seemed like there was so much need and I felt like I didn't understand it. I didn't know how I could participate in a meaningful way, but I felt just pulled to do that. I don't know how to explain it more than that, but yeah, it was just really a desire to be a part of it and make a difference in some way. It was a combination of that. And then also I had an injury. I was out for the majority of a season. So the combination of those two things and me having to go and have surgery and recover just put me in this other mindset where I thought, okay, as my next step, I'm going to look into college. Maybe now is the time. It was earlier than I expected. I thought I'd have a longer dance career, but it just felt like the right moment to explore it. So I ended up applying to a few different schools that had good international relations or diplomacy programs. And the one that I was most excited about was Occidental College in Los Angeles, because at least at that time, they were the only undergraduate school that had an internship program with the United Nations. Applied there, ended up getting in and got to go and do that program in New York again. So I went back to New York for a very different reason this time. And that set me on this whole path of microfinance and social impact work. So microfinance came into the picture while I was in college. I learned a bit about the model in school in one of my classes. And when I went to the United Nations, I had the opportunity to work with the Finnish mission to the UN. The mission at that time was had the presidency of the EU. So they had a lot going on. They had doubled up their office. There were desks in the middle of the hallways. It was a really chaotic, crazy, exciting time to be there. And one of the areas that I was asked to support on was economic development. And so through that work, I got to go and sit in on these meetings about economic development and microfinance kept coming up. That was also the year that Muhammad Yunus won an award for developing this concept of microfinance. And so I think all of these things came together to be very inspiring to me. And I ultimately wrote my senior thesis on microfinance. It felt to me like this was this incredible community-based model of making a difference, of poverty alleviation, of investing in community and people. And I just thought that was a very exciting model. Now, in hindsight, I may have, that may have resonated deeply given my own kind of community experience growing up in a smaller town. And it really kind of blossomed through that experience at the UN. I also had the great fortune of meeting David Kyle, who at the time was the COO and CIO of Acumen Fund, which is one of the earliest impact investing funds. And they had done a lot of work in the microfinance space. And so David became a great mentor of mine. And he was able to, to help me develop my understanding of microfinance and eventually helped set me up on a one-week tour in India to go meet with all of these different microfinance institutions to help with my senior thesis on the topic. And that's really what led me to ultimately move back to India after graduating, because during that trip, I one of the, the organizations offered me a job after I graduated. I thought, well, if not now, when? Microfinance is a model of lending small amounts of money to people who are typically unbanked or don't have access to funds in that way. It can be 
lending money for small businesses. It can also be lending money for consumption or just emergency issues like healthcare and other things that can happen, come up in someone's life and actually be a bankrupting event in someone's life when they don't have money saved. It is a model that is runs on a different kind of currency than traditional lending. And so where traditional lending might look at your bank account and your history, your credit history to decide whether or not to lend you money, people in these communities that are unbanked or underbanked often don't have that kind of collateral, if you will, to be able to get a loan. And so in this microfinance model, what happens is instead of those types of assets, what is used instead is social collateral. For example, the self-help group Live Women, one woman in the group might receive a loan. And then only once she pays that loan back can another woman in that group receive a loan. And so in that way, that woman has that social pressure from her local community to make sure she pays back that loan. And whoever has lent her that money has the, even though they might not have some kind of physical collateral or bank account, you know, information to make them comfortable loaning that, they know that that community is going to support her and also potentially, you know, encourage and put some pressure on her to pay back that loan so they can also receive a loan at some point. I remember when I first arrived in India, there's such an interesting feeling, and I still feel this way every time I land there, where you just feel like the air hugs you because it is so thick with humidity and smells and I don't know, so many things. It is just, you know when you're there without looking at a sign or hearing the announcement from the the captain that you've landed there. And so it was just an immediate sense of being somewhere new, somewhere very different. When I first decided to go, I had this sense that, well, I've traveled through China before. I've traveled through Europe before. I've backpacked on my own and done this. And this was before we had smartphones, right? This was before I, I had any language skills. I, I still don't have any language skills, but I had no GPS to tell me or Google Maps to tell me where to go. And so I'd done those things in those other countries. And I felt very confident in myself that I could go and do this same thing in India and I would be fine there. I remember when I arrived there, suddenly realizing that this was a very different experience. And those other experiences maybe didn't map as well as I had previously thought they would. I did arrive into Delhi and that's where I was primarily based while I was there. But a lot of the work that we did for this microfinance program we were developing there was in the rural areas in the Northeast. So I had this really wonderful experience there where I got to be in the city, but also spend a lot of time out in these small rural villages in Bihar and Assam and Sikkim. And it was just a really incredible way to experience this place and realize that there is so much variation. Someone told me once that India is constantly in conflict with itself. There's every experience and every alternate experience there. And so going to these small towns in the mountains and then going into downtown old Delhi with the markets and just the chaos <laughs> uh, was just a whole range of experiences. And all of it just felt very new and overwhelming in a good way. But I would say also the poverty there and the way that everything there is so raw 
So there was certainly poverty in China when I was there, but you didn't see it in the same way. It wasn't so dramatic and in your face. And in India, it felt like everything was very raw and on the surface and right there. For me, working in India made me realize that there are different approaches and different ways of getting things done in different places. So I'd grown up from the perspective, this very Western perspective of if you just keep pushing on things and you just keep moving the ball forward, things will start to break through and can make it happen. And it was very much a, you know, do the work, it will pay off kind of approach. I think in India, what I realized is that that model doesn't always work. And sometimes the most progress can be made by taking a step back and listening or some things just have a different timeline. Getting things done in India can be a very frustrating experience and very opaque in terms of how to get things done. It was certainly a lesson in patience and also just learning and observation and trying to figure out what the scenario was and what was required of me to help move the ball forward and keep making progress. And that seemed to change every day when I was there. I remember going to a small village in northern Bihar and I was going there for a week or two to do some work setting up this microfinance program that we were piloting. And when I was there, I met an older gentleman who was called Mamaji. And Mamaji was just one of those wise souls that you just gravitate to and you just want to sit in his presence and have conversations with him. And that's what we did. I remember sitting under the mango trees that they had there and in the afternoons, he would always just want to sit and talk and he would share stories of the local village and talk about the work that we were doing and and helpful it was for the community. And he would want to hear from us as well, stories about where else we had traveled and what our perspective was being there. It was a wonderful experience to be able to have him there while we were working on this program and learning about this new community and culture. He felt like this guide and like someone who could really communicate with us about the next level of what we were seeing and help us understand what we were seeing and put it in context. And so he was just a warm, wonderful soul and lovely person, but also was just such an incredible guide and help while we were there and just learning and figuring out (laughs) how we were going to do this big project that we were set out to do. Coming back to the US, I felt a greater sense of culture shock than I felt going to India. I remember specifically feeling that way. And a big part of that was just that I didn't expect it. When you go home, you expect to feel comfortable and like you're going home and you're back in your place in the world. And I certainly did not feel that way. I remember reading a book at the time, I believe it was called You Can't Go Home Again. And it just resonated so deeply with me at that moment. And I think when I went back, it became very difficult for me to try and figure out what to do from there. I actually would have stayed on in India, but the work that I was doing had ended and I didn't find something else that seemed like the right next step. And I was also sick. I kept getting sick from the pollution at the time. And so 
it became a question of my health and needing to just at least take a step back for a little bit before potentially going back. And I did look at, at going back, but ultimately got this opportunity in New York to join a consulting firm that was doing microfinance programs and broader livelihood development programs globally. And so was very fortunate to join them. But the experience of coming back and leaving India was very difficult. And for years later, I would go back a couple of times a year, probably through this other work that I was doing and just to visit friends. And I remember I, that, that feeling that I, I mentioned where you fly in and you can just tell from the air where you are, that just being such a, a wonderful feeling and just a very emotional moment for me because I'd always be so happy to go back. And I think it still feels that way for me. It's still a, a kind of different home. The story of Grapevine, it really started with me going back to the U.S. and moving to New York to join this firm that was doing this microfinance consulting globally. And around that time, Kiva started taking off, which is an online platform to facilitate microfinance style loans to people to help them with small businesses or other projects. And so I was very excited about that model. And then Kickstarter launched. And so just this broader use of technology to help facilitate funds to people who could use them and really put them to good work or create something meaningful in the world. That was this whole early days of crowdfunding that was very inspiring to me. And so I decided to go to business school because I really wanted to pursue that. I loved the work that I was doing in microfinance on the ground in these communities globally, but I loved this idea of technology really helping to open up this whole model and make it more accessible and bring in more funds and ultimately create more impact. So when I was in business school, I explored this model quite a bit. I actually got to do a little consulting for Kickstarter. I launched a crowdfunding platform as part of the new venture competition at, at HBS and was in both cases exploring the model, but also constantly thinking about how can we make this a more purposeful experience? So even at that point in the early days, it, it started to feel like crowdfunding was becoming a bit transactional and both the donor or backers and the, the creators or beneficiaries we're feeling some disconnect and some tension from that. And so I was really exploring what a more purposeful model of online social giving could be. Ultimately, I felt like that needed to live in this nonprofit space, or that was a place that could really benefit from something like that. And I wasn't exactly sure what that looked like yet. So I decided to go into the nonprofit sector after business school. I spent a few years at Lincoln Center and then a few years at New York University. And I got to help launch new programs and do some really fun, wonderful work at both places. But along the way, I also worked closely with my development colleagues to fundraise to support those programs and just saw how this existing philanthropic model works really well for a narrow segment of the population. So not surprisingly, and like many industries, much of the philanthropic kind of world has been built for white wealthy men. And what I realized is that that leaves out a large portion of people who are engaging in philanthropy, would like to engage in philanthropy, I believed, if they had a better way that was more meaningful for them and more accessible to them. 
And so that really started me on this path of exploring what we could do to facilitate that. And uh, I knew from the beginning it would be something with collaboration. There would have to be some kind of collaborative approach here. And initially, the idea, though, was more about collaboration between a donor and an expert or a professional grant maker and facilitating that access. So a donor could feel more confident in their giving with guidance from an expert that they might not be able to connect with otherwise. That initial idea was well received, but it actually didn't galvanize giving. It wasn't really turning into dollars moved. What we kept hearing from people is that there was this real desire to connect with other like-minded donors and to collaborate with them. We flipped our focus at that point and started focusing on how can we connect donors with other donors and enable that model of collaboration more. And it was really at that time that the few giving circles that were already out there and operating in their local communities discovered us and reached out. And we learned that, wow, there's this whole amazing movement of this collective giving model out there. It's called a giving circle. And there are people doing this in all of these communities across the country, but they don't have tools that have really been built to specifically facilitate this model. So instead, they're piecing together spreadsheets and different software solutions to try and make it work. And so at that point, we really started collaborating with these few giving circles to build something that would meet their specific needs and that we could then take to that broader community. We finally launched Giving Circles on Grapevine publicly on March 31st of 2020, which was crazy timing. <laughs> but that set us on this, this whole new path. So it, it was not an easy decision to start the company. I, well, let me put it this way. It was not an easy decision to leave a full-time job while living in New York City. It was a much easier decision to start a company. I remember early on, I'd started working on the concept while I was still working at NYU. And I was trying to juggle the two things. It became difficult to make that work and really feel like I was putting in enough time and effort into this fledgling enterprise for it to have a real shot. And I remember talking to some friends and family about quitting my job so I could really just focus full time on this for the next six to 12 months. I'm fortunate to have really wonderful, supportive friends and family who probably didn't immediately say, that's crazy, what are you thinking? I do remember some conversations with people about, well, do you really think that's wise? Do you think that maybe you could just keep working on this on the side and keep this other job going and then you'll have that security? I had those same concerns, but I remember talking to some other founders and I heard from them that it's just such a an overly full-time job to start a company. You're really not giving yourself or this enterprise any real shot if you don't commit fully your headspace, you know, as well as your time to getting it up and off the ground. I felt like that was the path that I needed to take for me. I know it's not the path for everyone, but I was pretty committed to that. The other issue early on was that I really didn't know what I was going to do. I had this idea of building a purposeful giving experience through collaboration. That's very broad. We could have gone in millions of different directions with that. I didn't have a team. I hadn't worked in technology. So there were just so many things to figure out still and networks to build and all of that, that it seems like 
maybe I should be doing some of that while still working before I then made that leap with a more clear plan and strategy to execute on. But I think that there was also a moment of timing where with my current job, there was a moment that came up where it seemed like either I'm committing for another few years or now's the right time for me to transition out. It just became a moment where I decided that I was going to go ahead and take this leap and invest in myself. And also, I had that feeling that if I didn't do this, I would regret not giving it a try. There is a feeling that I needed to do this for myself, even if it didn't seem like the ideal situation at that moment, I needed to take that leap. And so all of those things conspired for me to go ahead and get started. And I I had good support from friends and family. And I think there was probably more support early on. I think the harder part is when you still are struggling to kind of figure out what the path is and things haven't quite hit yet, where some of that support starts to, it doesn't wane, but but more questions come up. Okay, you've been at this for a while. How are you feeling about it? Have you thought about looking at other opportunities out there? And so that was part of my journey as well, a good year later or so. Early on, that kind of encouragement or positive feedback, I received more in the conversations I was having with people in the philanthropic sector. That was encouraging. It made me feel like, okay, what I'm working on is meaningful, although it wasn't feedback about the specific product or you know model that we had built yet, but it still felt like positive feedback that there was a real gap here and a real need to do something. That was really helpful, I would say, early on to build that confidence that we were working on something that deserved our focus and, and time. The first time I really started to feel like, okay, we're on to something, was when we had made that switch to the collaboration between donors approach. And those first few giving circles reached out. And that's where we realized, wow, there's a whole community out there that is already doing this and they don't have great tools and they're asking us for our help. It felt like there's a real gap that we can fill here. And suddenly the direction became much more clear. You know, when you're early on with a company and you're just trying to figure out like which direction to go, it can be overwhelming. There's so many different ways that you could go and you run these experiments to try and get some feedback from the market and see which direction could make more sense. And also, I think you need to continually be checking in with yourself about which direction is meaningful to you, because if it ultimately turns out this is not something you're excited to pursue, then it's frankly, not worth pursuing, right? It's not worth your time. You're not the right person anyway to pursue it. And so for us, it was when those giving circles reached out and we were starting to collaborate with them a bit. And we then got to a really critical moment where we only had a few months of runway left. I didn't go out and raise a big round to start my work, right? I pulled in a few angel checks to help pull in a couple of early team members to get started, but we had very little money. And then we also had a little bit of activity going on with some of these startups, some of these companies that were interested in our help with giving back as a group. At that moment, we had a decision to make because we realized we don't have enough time to split our focus between these two audiences. We need to go all in on one and hope that gets us far enough along in the next few months that we can continue, that we can either earn enough money to continue or show enough traction that we can raise the money to continue. And so we decided to go all in on the Giving Circle community. And ultimately that became this wonderful moment for us because we did that in Q1 of 2020. And 
started building up our community with those Giving Circle leaders and then launched publicly on March 31st of 2020. And that coincided with COVID and all of these Giving Circles having to move online to continue their work and new Giving Circles wanting to get started to support their local communities and help organizations through COVID. We had been feeling this traction starting to build in Q1 of 2020, but then when we launched publicly and COVID hit March, April, May of that year, things just skyrocketed for us. And it was really exciting, really overwhelming. I remember I had my phone set up to ping every time we have a a new donation come through. And my phone like throughout the night was just constantly going. That was when we just, it was like drinking from a fire hose kind of moment where we were just scrambling to keep up and try to understand what was happening and how we could keep growing from there. One giving circle that had started on Grapevine in our private phase was started by Edgar Villanueva, who is a Native American author, grant maker, activist, and he started this giving circle to support Native American communities across the country. And during COVID, many of those communities were hit very hard And Edgar really was in a position and took on that role of wanting to support and be a leader to try and galvanize more resources to support those communities. His giving circle really just took off in March and April and May of that year. And it was just incredible to see because he was able to pull in donors from across the country to support these communities. And he was so wonderful about sharing stories from the communities and where the money was going and how it was helping to bring food to these different areas and to provide healthcare support and all of these different things through that larger community. And he was able to build such a large group of donors and move so many funds from them that he got the attention of some larger pools of capital. And so then he started getting these large matching donations, 100,000, 250,000. It really was this incredible example of how a community of people could come together to support others during this time and make a big difference together, but also really the ripple effects of that impact could be significant by pulling in additional resources, raising more awareness about these issues, and even galvanizing volunteers and more. For me, that was a really wonderful giving circle and just experience because at that time, you know, we were all going through COVID and we were all questioning. I was in quarantine for two weeks when this all first started, right after we launched Grapevine on March 31st. I then flew to California on April 1st to be with family and was in quarantine for two weeks. And so I was just working constantly, seeing all of these things happening in the world and just so grateful to have the opportunity to one, have this incredible distraction, frankly, where we were so busy just trying to keep up, but two, knowing that the work that we were doing was directly supporting people affected by COVID and this current moment that we were in. So that was just, I think, a really powerful example for us. And there are so many others of giving circles that started during COVID that have made incredible impact and others that pivoted to really support their communities during that hardest time in the the earlier days of COVID in their communities. I believe that this community-based model of giving is really how we naturally want to give and how people naturally do give, whether it's philanthropic dollars or It's pooling of funds to support someone who's just lost their home to a fire or whatever it is. This kind of collaborative model of giving 
is inherent in who we are. And I, I think while the giving circle model as we know it here today in the U.S. is credited with starting here in the early 90s by women across the country who wanted to pool their donations and make a bigger difference in their local communities together. This model has deep roots in these social investment models like Tandas and Susus and self-help groups, microfinance movement around the world that go back centuries. To me, this is a much more purposeful an impactful way of giving, both for the donor who has agency and connection to the impact that they're creating and to the recipient who is able to receive a larger amount of funds and often a more ongoing recurring community of supporters through this model. My vision, my goal is that everyone is in a giving circle, if not two or three, whether it's your local giving circle for your community right there in town, as well as the giving circle you're connected to with your book club and maybe that cause that you really care about healthy oceans or women and girls. That's my vision is that this can really become the way that we give as communities that is aligned with our goals and our values and that can really remake philanthropy so that people feel that they too can be philanthropists, that everyday philanthropists can make a real difference and reshape their communities in the ways that are meaningful to them so that we don't rely on big philanthropy to support our communities. Because while that's important and we want those dollars to go into our communities, who gives the money is also very important. That determines what gets funded. And so who gives the money, their values, what they believe in, that has a big impact in how our communities are supported and shaped. And so I think this community-based model where people who are closest to the issues, closest to the people that they're looking to support and impact and have that lived experience. If we can bring those things closer together, those people helping to guide where funds are going, I think that can have a huge impact for our communities. And yeah, I hope that we at Grapevine can make it so easy that people can set these up and do this work anywhere. That's my goal. <laughs> Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media and is hosted by me, Meshlakani. I want to thank Emily Rasmussen for sharing her story with us. For more information about Grapevine, you can visit grapevine.org. This episode was produced and mixed by Stephanie Horton and Ramsey Yunt with our senior producer, Olivia Briley. Our assistant producer is Haas Nasser. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. And of course, we really appreciate you sharing this with your friends and subscribing to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. 